today we continue our study in the life of renewal, the new life of a Christian, the renewed life. We've been learning about a new way to live in our renewed series. Today we learn about a new way to think about rule and authority from Romans chapter 13. So if you open up your Bibles there, I'm going to read. Follow along in your copy of the Scriptures with me. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Version, verses 1 through 7. Starting in verse 1, the Bible says, Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise for the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection. Not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, Fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. Now, when we read this today, it ruffles our feathers just a little bit, doesn't it? I think it does probably in every age. If you think about the different people that you know, or maybe that you don't know personally, but you've seen in the media, so-called authorities, whether they're rogue police officers or immoral politicians or maybe even someone closer to you. Maybe it's a boss, an unethical boss or someone like that who's in authority. When we read these words that such people are messengers of God to us or for us, how do we wrap our minds around that? How do we make sense of that? I want to give you a few other passages of Scripture so that you know this is not something that just the Apostle Paul have, has pulled out of thin air. Or maybe just some kind of fluke in the New Testament. There are other uh, New Testament passages I want you to see. Here are a few that we're going to just cover today. We see uh, these same types of commands or phrases used in Titus chapter 3 verse 1. In 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17, and some of these we're going to read in just a moment, but I wanted to put the list up here so that if you are a note taker, uh, or if you're a picture taker, you can do that with your phone if you like. John 19, 8 through 12, this is a passage where Jesus is actually before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor over Judea. He's having a conversation with Pilate there. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3, where we're commanded to pray for those in authority, for our leaders. And then Hebrews 13, 17 as well. Here's just a few, but 
Titus 3.1 says, Remind them, that this is, a, this is a command to a pastor, to an elder, of what he, how he is to lead the church. He says, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. And then again, in 1 Peter chapter 2, I'm just going to go ahead and turn there. You can turn there if you like as well. 1 Peter chapter 2, I didn't put this on the screen because it's a rather lengthy passage. He says in chapter 2, verse 13 through 17, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. This is almost verbatim of what Paul says in Romans 13. You have this idea of right and wrong. Their job is to punish evildoers and to promote the good. That's, that's their job. That's what they're supposed to do. Do they always do it? No. But that's what they're supposed to do. Verse 15, for such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, do not use your freedom as a covering veil for evil, but use it as bond slaves, that is servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Literally in Romans 13, 1, the Bible says, let every soul... Every suke, every soul, let every person be in subjection. And the idea here is not that subjection is, this is some type of passive thing. Sometimes, when you're put in subjection, you don't have a choice, do you? Right? The idea here for Christians, and I have no idea why this thing's crackling on me. We'll try that. Can you hear me? Yeah? Okay. Maybe it's something about my face or something today. I don't know. But the idea here is not a passive subjection. Am I cracking in and out? I'm going to use a different mic. Let's do that. This is not a passive type of subjection. Sometimes you're subjected like I was with my older brother. When he would pin me down, I had no choice. But that's not the type of subjection the Bible is talking about for Christians. We are to subject ourselves. The word that's used here is the word hupotasso, which is the same Greek word that's used in Ephesians 5.22 and on to talk about the subjection that we are to, the ways that we are to subject ourselves to one another in personal relationships like in our family, in our church body. It is not something that we're supposed, that we do with a twisted arm behind our back. It's a, it's a, it's a joyful Subjection. So he says, subject yourselves. That is, voluntarily subject yourselves to the governing authorities. Now, just in our flesh, we don't like that. We don't like rulers. We don't like authority. We don't like to be ruled. I remember years ago, I went on a mission trip to England. And while I was there, we did some street evangelism in a suburb of Manchester called Preston. And then we ended up going into Manchester and we went to uh, 
this university in Manchester. It might have been the University of Manchester. And they have these, uh, every now and then on campus, they will have these uh, religious groups that will meet, like interfaith groups. Hey, you want to learn more about Christianity? Come to our group. You want to learn more about Buddhism? Come to our Buddhist group or whatever. And so we were, we were there visiting a Christian meeting. Come and talk to other Christians who are different from each other, but learn what Christ is about. And this big, burly English guy, I think his name was like Nigel or something like that. It was an English name. He comes in. He's a professor at the University of Manchester. Comes in, big Viking beard, long hair, braids. And he had this, I'll never forget, he had this black Leonard Skinner t-shirt on. <laughs> it's just a funny picture. He came in, he introduced himself, and he said, my name is Nigel, and I'm a Christian anarchist. And I remember looking across the room at my friend RJ, and we both had the same look on our face, like, what? I didn't even know you could be a Christian anarchist. And so uh, we were a little bit just shocked, but we saw, what in the world is a Christian anarchist? I had never even heard of that. Can you be a Christian anarchist? Well, evidently you can, because Nigel was. And, and uh, you know, Christian anarchists are, are, are folks who, who believe in Jesus, who believe in Christ, but they don't believe, that they believe that, that the only authority on earth is the, the, what they call the reign of God uh, made explicit in the words of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. Right? So that's the only rule. So you go to Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, that is the only authority over, over everything on the earth. They'll even go to Old Testament passages, passages like in Judges, where the book of Judges would say, and in those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did whatever was right in his own sight. They would say, see, in the Old Testament, God's approving. Men can do what's right in their, in their own sight. However, there's a problem with Christian anarchy, not to get in the weeds, but least, uh, least of which is Romans 13. 1 through 7, where we are right now. But in Judges chapter 17, when we think about uh, this statement that's used repetitively, they did what was right in their own sight, it's usually sandwiched between some contextual passages as well. So I want you to just kind of turn with me to Judges 17 just really quickly. We're not going to stay there very long. But we will see this, this saying repeated in the Old Testament. And I want to give you a snapshot of the type of situation where this verse is usually used, or this explanation is usually used, but it's used throughout the book of Judges. In, in chapter 17, here's a scenario, starting in verse 1. Now there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah, and he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver which were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse in my hearing, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. He then returned the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said, I wholly dedicate the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a graven image. Did you hear that? A graven image and a molten image. Now, therefore, I will return them to you. So when he returned the silver to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver, gave them to the silversmith who made them into a graven image. Do you see that again? Graven image. 
and a molten image, and they were in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and a house and household idols, and consecrated one of his sons that he might become his priest. In those days, here it is. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Now I ask you, is this a good example of God's desire for us to reign and rule ourselves? Absolutely not. This is what happens when we reign and rule ourselves. We make idols. We make graven images. Israel did, however, come into trouble when they chose Saul as their first king. Some believe that wanting a king to rule them was in itself a sinful desire. While others believe that their sinfulness lay in their rejection of God as their supreme ruler and their desire to be like the surrounding nations in military and economic prestige. Either way, Israel did in fact reject God as their supreme ruler, didn't they? They opted for a man who stood head and shoulders above all the rest and was charismatic way beyond his peers, a man named Saul. Saul would prove to be one of Israel's worst kings of all time because of his rejection of God. But he was followed by a man named David. Remember David? Shepherd boy, shepherd king. Now David was far from perfect. We know that he sinned in many ways. He committed adultery. He had one of his lead soldiers killed on the lines, line of battle so that he could commit adultery, so that he could have that soldier's wife. But in the end, the Bible describes David as a man after what? God's own heart. A man after God's own heart. A king who it was said of him he is a man after God's own heart. It is difficult to even imagine those words ever being used again to describe a human monarch, a prime minister, a president. Is it not? A man or a woman after God's own heart? Some rulers in our past, though never being described like David, have indeed ruled well. We can go through a list of all the rulers that have ever lived between now and David's time and Many have ruled nobly, ethically, fairly, humbly, responsibly. And though we can identify such rulers throughout history across the, the globe, one would be hard-pressed, very much so, to locate such an individual in Rome during Paul's time that he's writing this letter. As the first century church began to grow, even if it, in its infancy, there were ruling powers determined to exterminate the gospel of the quote-unquote king of the Jews. As a matter of fact, you would hear the phrase being said over and over and over, no king but Caesar. It's what you were required to say when you were confronted by the authorities during the first century. If you dared to utter a word of allegiance to another authority or denied that Caesar was even the only, the one and true God. It might mean your life or the life of your spouse and or your children. 
It might mean your job. So how can the Holy Spirit speak through Paul in this letter and say that we should be in subjection to the authorities? Authorities like Nero, like Caligula, like the other many Caesars who not only persecuted Christians, but murdered them and punished them endlessly. How can he say that to resist Caesar is to resist the ordinance of God? This would have been a very hard saying for Paul's readers to accept and put into practice. And God is again, through Paul's pen, showing how new life in Christ impacts the Christian mind. There's a new way to be human in Christ. There's a new way to think about yourself now that you're in Christ. As a member of Christ's body, we learned that in chapter 12, remember? As a member of Christ's church, and there's a new way to think about rule and authority. A new way. When followers of Christ begin to change, remember that word that was used in the 12th chapter in the first and second verse? Metamorphosis, like an ugly caterpillar turning into a butterfly. When that change happens, when that begins to occur in a Christian by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we also begin to, as Paul says, not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. When someone does that, we tell them to get off their what horse? Their high horse. You need to get off your high horse. Why? Because they're thinking of themselves too what? Highly. They're thinking of themselves in a way that as Christians, we are not to think. Suddenly, in Christ, I'm not the king. Suddenly, in Christ, I'm not the sole authority of my life. God is my king. And whatever authority he has established... The Bible says, I am now under. You are now under as well. And like Paul's first century audience, we also may find this to be a hard pill to swallow here in the 21st century for many reasons. When we turn on the news and we see the things that authority figures are doing, the way they've abused their authority. Depending upon where you grew up, your background, your situation in life, the things that you've experienced, some people trust authority more than others because they've never been given reason not to trust the authorities. Whether it be police officers, whether it be governors, mayors, authority figures, let's say, in the educational system. I guarantee you, teachers have students come into their classroom who do not share their values and who have never had a healthy authority figure over them. They've never even seen healthy authority. They've never had a mother or a father who's in healthy authority over them, but they've had dictators Sometimes they've had abusers. And so this can be a hard pill for us to swallow. But as new 
creatures in Christ, we have to begin thinking differently about authority. We can't think about authority the way that we used to, based on our experiences, nor can we think about authority the way that the culture does. The many different narratives in our culture that float around about authority figures. There's a new way to think about authority as a Christian. You cannot think of it the way that you used to. And it's not an overnight change. It's a journey that we all walk together. Amen? That's why you're part of a local church body. And if you're not, you need to be. It's a hard pill to swallow. Here are a few things we notice. Starting off in verse 1, as he talks about the authorities, all authorities are established by who? By God. All authorities are established by God. That's hard to understand. When we read these, this passage, we wonder, is, is he talking about, or at least I wonder, is he talking about the position or the person? You ever wonder about that one? Is it just the position? Is it just the idea of rule that God has ordained? Or is it the person? That's a good question to ask. I'm not 100% sure, but with the rest of the biblical evidence, I lean towards the person. Because when I read about what happened in Egypt, how God used, he didn't just use Pharaoh, the Bible says he lifted him up. He hardened his heart. God hardens, sometimes he'll harden a ruler's heart to soften the hearts of his people. So it wasn't just the fact that there was a king in Egypt, but a particular king. A particular king. All authorities are established by God. But something else I want you to realize, you hold your place there and turn to, uh, back to 1 Peter And this time we'll be in chapter 3, verse 22, talking about Jesus. He says, Jesus is at the right hand of God. That is now, after his resurrection. He says, he is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been what? Subjected to him. So, as a Christian... You and I live under the rule and reign of Christ. But we also know that every authority in the world lives and operates under the rule and reign of Christ. Nothing happens in our world without Jesus' sovereign knowledge and authority over it. So it doesn't matter who gets elected president. It matters in some ways. But God's plan of salvation, the day of Jesus' return, none of that's going to change. You can rest in the knowledge that Jesus is king. But all the authority in our world is under his command, is in his hand. He can bring it to a close at any time. All authorities are established by God. I hope that gives you comfort today. 
I hope it also gives you a sense of responsibility and stewardship if you find yourself in a leadership position either in your family, personal relationships, in your workplace. What a stewardship is given to us and we'll get to that in a minute. So number one, all authorities are established by God. Number two, we have a responsibility to subject ourselves. Believers are responsible to subject themselves. This is a voluntary act. Turning your Bibles over to John chapter 19. I want to show you something. In John 19, I mentioned it earlier, this exchange between Jesus and a Roman gov governor named Pilate. You know, what's interesting is for many years, uh, secular scholars, man, handheld mic makes it hard to get a drink of water. They don't teach you this stuff in seminary. For many years, secular scholars said, oh, Bible's not true. We can't find anything in history, like the Bible's not history. We can't find anything in history mentioning anybody named Pilate who was a governor in Judea. So he never existed. It was made up. The whole conspiracy of the Bible, they all made it up, whoever they are. Well, um, not long ago, they found a, a road marker in Caesarea Philippi, I think it was, uh, or Caesarea Maritima. Anyway, it was a, a, a road post, stone, and it had his name inscribed saying he was the governor of Judea. And they go, oh, okay, well, then it's true then. Because they unearthed a block of stone. And this has been around for thousands of years. Anyway, side note. So starting in verse 8, Pilate therefore heard this statement, that is that uh, he was making himself out to be the Son of God, that Jesus would make himself out to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, verse 8 says, he was then more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Now remember, this is after Jesus was betrayed by Judas. He's been handed over to the authorities. He is before the Roman governor the Jews want him to be crucified, and the Roman governor is going, whoa, way held up. We don't crucify people for this kind of stuff. What's, what's the deal? What's going on here? So he appeals to Jesus and says, Jesus, defend yourself. Like, answer these charges. Jesus gives him no answer. Verse 10, Pilate therefore said to him, you do not speak to me? Do you know, do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me up to you has the greater sin. Jesus says this to Pilate, the governor. He says, I subject myself to you and for you to do your worst because you are who you are and where you are by the Father's authority. Jesus did not defend himself. He knew something about Pilate. Now he was aware of his own authority too, wasn't he? He could tell the, the wind to stop and he would tell the waves to subside and they did. 
And people marveled and said, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey his voice? And they would ask this question, what kind of authority does he have? Jesus knew his authority. Everybody around him, his disciples knew about his authority, but he knew the Father's authority over all other human authorities. We have, as Christians, an active responsibility to subject ourselves. It doesn't do us any good to click our heels in subjection and obedience when we're forced to. God is delighted in you and me when we obey, when we're subject to the authorities like Jesus voluntarily placed himself under that same authority. Thirdly, authorities have a responsibility to promote good and punish evil. This is their very purpose. So if you're in a place of authority, if you have people who answer to you, this is your primary job. So wait a minute. I thought it was to make money and make friends. No. Not according to the Lord. It's to promote good. It's to do good things. And if you have a job that you can't do good in, I, ho I hope you do. I hope you, you have work that you feel good about, that you're doing good in. But that's the responsibility of authorities. But sometimes authorities don't do that, do they? They don't promote good. They promote evil. If we go back to the Old Testament and we look at all the different descriptions of the, of the kings from 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles, you're going you're to read their, their epitaphs. You're gonna, what was it? On, the last thing said about that king was either they went to sleep in peace with their fathers. They were buried in the valley of the kings or something glorious like that. Or they died and no one ever remembered them. Or they were burned outside of the city. I mean, this is the end of your, how did they rule? They were either good or they were evil. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 14, we looked at that earlier. In 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3, we are told to pray for those in authority. Why? Because of their responsibility. They have the responsibility to promote good and punish evil. In the church, it's the same way. In Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders, submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. Literally, in Romans 13, 1, let every soul subject itself to the governing authorities, to rulers. They keep watch over your souls as those who will what? Give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Authorities have a responsibility to promote good and punish evil. And then finally, we notice, as we go back to Romans 13, he tells us not to resist authority. Rulers are not, a, not a, a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Now this next statement in verse 3, do you, 
Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good. Now, what does he mean there? Are there not authorities in your life and in my life who will give you cause for fear even if you do good? You better believe it. Yeah, even if you do good. Sometimes people have a target placed on their back just because of the color of their skin or the place where they're hanging out. Maybe they have a background, they have a history, and it's hard to get away from. And people treat them unfairly. People in authority will treat them unfairly. Maybe you've been mistreated this way. This is a hard command. But if we know that Jesus has all authorities in his hands, then when we do good, even if there is a temporary fear of a temporary authority, we can know and we can trust that all authority is in Jesus' hands and that we have no fear if we do good. And then finally, authorities deserve our respect. Why? Because of their personality? Because of the way that they rule? Because of their goodness or lack of goodness? Nope. Authorities deserve our respect by virtue of their office. By virtue of their office. Men, if you're here this morning and you are married, and you work, you're out in the workplace, if you absolutely stink at subjecting yourself in a healthy way to those in authority over you in your workplace or in whatever, in whatever place, how do you expect your wife to think about your authority in the home? Moms, if you're a mom and you desire for your children to respect your authority... How are you displaying your respect for those in authority over you at your workplace, in your home, or wherever? Do, do your children see you as a respectful person? Because here's the thing. We know that kids don't have to learn evil, <laughs> right? That's not something that's learned. That's just innate. Your, our children will do wrong eventually. They will sin. But don't you agree with me that there's a difference between sinning and disrespect? Disrespect is learned. It's an attitude that's learned from other people. And so if you don't respect, if we have a generation now that is disrespectful of the authorities that God has put in place, whether we think they're healthy, whether we think they're right, whether we think they're wrong. If we start to cultivate a disdain for authority and rule, it's going to exponentially increase in the next generation. And the way that we model that respect has implications for the future in your family and in the church. 
Every human institution, the Bible says, subject yourself to every human institution. They are messengers of God for our good. I think it's interesting today how Americans celebrate the Revolutionary War. Independence Day, July 4th. I don't think, honestly, I don't think we have a clue today at how difficult a decision it was for our forefathers and mothers to decide to secede and to go at war with their homeland. I don't think we get it. We shoot fireworks and we put little pithy sayings on Facebook, you know, (laughs) and we celebrate our freedom. But do we struggle like they did about going against God's chosen authority? I think it was a huge struggle for them. I think it was the last straw. I don't think anyone was giddy. I think that Christians were weeping. I think that pastors were weeping when they decided to go to war. Not because of the cost of war so much as what it indicated. A break. When it comes to authority, folks, we love the fact that Jesus has the authority to save us from our sins, don't we? That the power of sin, death, and hell have been overcome by His atoning sacrifice on the cross, His resurrection from the dead, His authority over death. When we think of Him, we picture Him with His foot on the neck of our adversary, the devil, don't we? Amen. We think of Him as who He will be at His return. Our conquering King. The one before whom every knee, the Bible says, will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. But remember, brothers and sisters, that before he was exalted, he not only was humbled, but the Bible says that he humbled himself. He submitted himself. Not unwillingly, but voluntarily. He knew that there was no authority under heaven except that which had been granted by the Father. He became obedient to the point of death. The Bible says, underline this, even death on a cross. That is just not some pointless parenthetical. It's emphatic. Why? Because the cross was a symbol of human Humiliation. Only the lowest of the low were crucified. It was Rome's way of keeping evildoers in line. But Jesus never sinned. Jesus was never an evildoer, even for a second of his life. So why did he do it? Why did he subject himself to even death on a cross? Because of God's love for you and me. Because of Jesus' desire to do the will of the Father. Knowing that the Father had authority over all things. And when we come to Matthew 28, 19 through 20, before we get to the Great Commission, Jesus says what? All what? Authority 
has been given to me. All authority has been given to me. He is risen. He is Lord. Because Jesus knew that all authority on earth was in the Father's hands, the Bible says, like a lamb, he was led to slaughter. Silent before his shearers. Have you trusted in Christ for salvation? He bore it all for you voluntarily. He submitted himself to the cross. Come to Christ today. Come to Christ knowing that he will not entertain a proud person. If you come to Christ with all your pride and you think, I'm coming to the King of Kings, I'm coming to the one who has authority to forgive me my sin, remember that before he had that authority, he humbled himself to the point of death, even a cross. He gave no defense to Pilate. He didn't say, do you know who I am? He didn't stick out his chest. And you can't come to Christ and we can't abide in Christ without humility. Without coming to him very lowly. Submitting to Him, to His Lordship. To be created new in Him means to be in subjection unto Him. There's a new way to live. You have to put your pride away. You have to voluntarily subject yourself to the things of God, the institutions that God has set up, and you have to, as Jesus has done, leave yourself in God's hands. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. For as Martin Luther said, here I stand, I can no other. I stand upon the word of God. Do to me what you must do. I, I acknowledge your authority. I acknowledge your authority over me. Do what you will. But this is where I must stand on the word of God. See, they all acknowledged the authority that God had given the secular rulers or for Martin Luther, the rulers in the Catholic Church. He didn't revolt. He didn't rebel. He said, do what you have to do. I'm in the Lord's hands. We must do that when we come to Christ. We must come to Him humbly, submit to Him not only as our Savior, but as our Lord, as our Master, as our King under whose authority we belong. There's a new way to be human. There's a new way to think about authority and rule for the Christian. He invites us to come and live a new life with a transformed mind.